Hello and welcome to Public Racing UK Magazine's Retro Racer Podcast. Some of you may remember our older publication, Retro Racer Magazine, a bi-monthly historical journal that went out of print a few years ago, and some of you have been clamouring for it to come back, and here it is, in an audio form. Think in depth articles, like an audio book, and you'll get an idea of what we have in store. In episode 3 we'll bring you part 1 of a two-part feature on the 1997 FIA GT season. In this instalment we'll recount how some of the factors that came together to create a championship season that still has race fans drooling over the exotica that was on track. Politics, cash, ego, three ingredients combined with the re-emergence of GT racing and the death of class 1-2 run cars that saw many interested parties wrestling for control. And yes, there will be pronunciation errors. By its very nature, the highest level of endurance racing has become a form of racing that is dominated by cycles. There has been the need, whether commercial or technological, for car manufacturers to use endurance racing to prove the durability and longevity of their mark. The influx and retreat of exotically produced machinery to be used as flag-waving totemic effigies has led the way for an ebbing and flowing of great automotive tides against the shore of the world's greatest race, Le Mans. While the French classic has become the singular focal point for fans, media and racing teams alike, the early visit to the magnificent Circuit de la Sarde has never been enough to sustain the year-round activities of the majority of participants. In most cases, an entry to the race will be accompanied by a racing programme designed to keep the team running and retaining staff throughout the full season. Often various different championships adopt Le Mans class rules to provide a competitive arena for these entries, thus keeping teams in action all year round. At various points in its history, the race has also been included as a round of one of the many sports car racing championships that have come and gone over the last 70 years or so. Currently established as a round of the World Endurance Championship, the history of the race is also littered with periods in time where it was nothing more than an invitational celebration of prototype and GT racing. One of the seasons that falls into this area was 1996. In this year, the race in effect became a catalyst, along with the ingredients of a number of other political ructions in motorsport, that would lead to the creation of the FIA GT Championship in 1997. Hopefully here we will put into context how and why this exotic championship came about. The early 1990s had arguably seen motor racing make its most rapid and largest leaps forward in technology. New techniques in the production of complex carbon fibre components and electronic technologies moved forward everything from engine management systems to gearbox manufacturing and hydraulic controls. Advanced computer programming helped in the understanding of vehicle and tyre dynamics and a vast leap forward in the real-world applications of wind tunnel data were factors that were merely the tip of the technological iceberg. Unsurprisingly, this often led to huge advantages in performance for those who could grip this technology quickly, and it would also lead to an extortionally priced arms race between the rivals trying to out-engineer each other. The reason of the game in Formula 1 was to witness an about-turning race car manufacturing, Williams, the Grove-based team named after the iconic team principal Sir Frank Williams had single-handedly taken the F1 grid hostage in the early 90s. As an engineering-based company, they had taken advantage of their understanding of these new black arts and changed the face of motorsport. In the space of a few short years, their grasp of these new technologies had led to the development of the Williams-Renault FW15C. This car, 
ended in the 1993 Formula One World Championship contained a host of driver-friendly aids. The FW15C was ahead of the field in every possible area of development. That allowed the team to enjoy an unparalleled gap to its dearest competitor. After a slow start in the first race of the season, the team was able to regularly qualify over one and a half seconds quicker than its opposition. Features of the FW15C included an intricate software management system in the transmission, active suspension, anti-lock brakes, traction control, fly-by-wire braking systems, power steering, and pneumatic valves to mention just a few things. It was THE complete package. Rivals McLaren, Bennett and Ferrari were becoming well versed themselves in various areas within this technology explosion, but in the foreseeable future it appeared that the sport would see a one-horse race. The public perception was that these driver aids were making the cars too easy to drive and that because of the astronomical costs associated, a level playing field would unlikely to be provided. These were some of the concerns which led to the governing body to outlaw these expensive and divisive gizmos and, apparently, halt the grown technology that racing was becoming dependent upon. While Williams was dominating the 1993 F1 season with Alain Prost, two other significant championships to the future of the FIA GT series were heading in opposite directions. Technology and cost was playing a part in the demise of the Group C-based World Sports Car Championship and at the same time the rise of the German-based DTM Touring Car Championship. The legend of Group C endurance racing is a well-deserved one. Exciting cars, superlative tracks, huge crowds and some of the most impressive Le Mans performances ever witnessed. Legend casts one Bernard Charles Eccleston as the evil and diminutive shaman who sacrificed the sport for the benefit of his Formula 1 empire. Although in reality, Bernie put the bullet into what was in effect an already lame animal. At the end of the Group C reign, the chances of recovery were slim, so he finished it off while picking at the carcass, notably the parts that were scavenged contained Peugeot and Mercedes DNA. Group C had entered the free in 1982 as part of the World Sports Car Championship, a multi-class series for endurance racing cars that was to be gradually transformed into a two-class championship for prototype racing machines. The season ended in controversy. Porsche took the title with the first of the machines built to Group C rules, the 956. An FIA ruling took the title from the small French Rondo team and handed it to the Stuttgart manufacturer. This was on the utterly insane basis of a privateer GT-class Porsche 911 scoring points at the Nürburgring round, which added points in the final title standings. It was the beginning of a new era, and its early years was totally dominated by Porsche. 1983 set the real tone for Group C. As much as I am vainglorious in my recalling of this majestic era of endurance racing, one detail does escape the memory of the average racing fan. There was only really portraiture in the genesis of the discipline. Of ten races run that year, the 956 won all but one. A sole Lancia win in a reduced grid race at Imola was the only anomaly. But that still does not paint the full picture. The Drivers' Championship does that in itself. The title went to Belgian veteran Jackie X in the number one Porsche. In fact, Porsche 956 drivers placed all the way to 17th in the table. Lancia drivers Ricardo Patrese and Sandro Nanini finished in 18th and 22nd. They were the only non-956 drivers in the top 30. The ensuing two seasons followed a similar path. Group C was essentially held aloft upon the shoulders of the German mark. 
Although Lancia pilfered a couple of races when the crumbs dropped in their direction, no real challenge arrived until 1986 from a couple of Jaguar entries from the American arm of the manufacturer. By this point, the manufacturer's championship had been scrapped and replaced with the team's championship. There was no point having a championship when only one constructor had really been in attendance. Despite all of this domination by the one mark, the championship was growing. In the mid-1980s, Formula One was still establishing itself as the major player in international televised motorsport. F1 hadn't yet become quite the powerhouse that we all remember it to have been, and trackside Group C was pulling as many, and in some cases more fans to the circuit than its single-seater cousin. The car companies noticed this. They also noticed that the bill for performing in front of these crowds was a fraction of what they would pay in F1. Also, as time had progressed, the 962 that Porsche were now racing was an evolved and lengthened 956. Their design seemed out of date. Were they ripe for the picking? The growth of Group C really took off with an increased commitment from Jaguar and the arrival of Sauber Mercedes, Nissan, Mazda, Aston Martin and Toyota, all with cars that fell somewhere between the 962 and an F1 car in terms of design and development. The later arrival of Peugeot heralded another rise in technology and manufacturing new. Their arrival and the associated further rise in costs essentially prompted the series to fall into decline. Their spending was out of sync with the manufacturers whose time in the category was coming to an end. While F1 forged ahead and created legends out the likes of Senna and Prost, who would be beamed into homes around the world every other Sunday, Group C had imploded, or rather, deflated limply. Political shenanigans and rule changes had taken precedence over the quality and consistency of the product. An unwise decision to change the engine form into the 3.5 litre units, which mirrored the F1 regulations of the time, had outpriced privateers. It also made the championship a final bust for competing manufacturers. Had Bernie and his FIA pal Max Mosley purposely engineered its downfall? Some say yes, due to Bernie being in on meetings concerning the teams and also having a hand in the promotion of the championship. Others put that down to paranoia. In reality, that was nothing more than Bernie looking after his own interests. The truth is, in 1993, if Bernie was looking with concern at arrival, he would have been looking at IndyCar. After all, they had poached the F1 world champion Nigel Mansell. They were also offering comparable racing in terms of being in single-seaters, in addition to that, the on-track product was put in F1 to shame. Group C was spent. The natural wastage of overspending and overambition brought an end to the category. With top-level sports car racing falling into financial disarray, the 1993 World Sports Car Championship was cancelled. With this in mind, Peugeot opted to run one last time in the Group C category at Le Mans. Behind closed doors, though, they were developing an F1 engine that would head in that direction with McLaren in 1994. One of the Group C rivals of Peugeot, Sauber, had already stepped into that arena. Sauber had run a Mercedes engine to two World Sports Car titles and a Le Mans 24 hour victory. The partnership had been such a success that it prompted Mercedes to build an F1 engine and enter the category with Sauber. The deal fell through though, but Sauber pushed forwards with quiet funding from Mercedes. A successful debut season in Formula 1 with Ilmore engines followed. It was such a smooth transition into the category that it inspired Mercedes to badge the Ilmore engine and reacquaint the Sauber Mercedes moniker. The feel in the paddock 
was that this was a precursor to Mercedes buying out Sauber and becoming a works team, returning the Silver Arrows to the top level of motor racing. It didn't quite turn out like that. The McLaren-Peugeot marriage failed fairly quickly, and after a brief affair with Sauber, the German manufacturer decided that jumping into bed with McLaren would serve their purpose much more sufficiently. This left the Silver Arrows dream in limbo. The red and white of Marlborough was going to quickly become a quasi-work scheme for the racing arm of the company. Although McLaren would eventually paint their car silver, they were still McLaren machines. Where would Mercedes now throw its racing heritage? In F1 with Marlborough McLaren, and also supplying engines to the Penske and Car team, also running the red and white colours of Marlborough, the need for the Mercedes corporate identity to be in the public eye was to be found elsewhere. And that place was right on their own doorstep, for now at least. Germany is one of the automotive powerhouse nations of the planet. But it wasn't until the early 90s that the country had a genuine Formula One star to shout about. Michael Schumacher. A product of the Mercedes Junior programme, Schumacher was racing for the Italian-owned and British-based Benetton team. That was not much good for promoting quality German automotive engineering. Rumours of a Schumacher-Mercedes tie-up were stoked and repeatedly dampened. The F1 Avenue would have to wait for a considerable amount of time before the company would be bold enough to dictate its own direction. For now, they'd have to learn the ropes as an engine builder while concentrating on other disciplines to get the silver message around the world. While Mercedes were becoming firmly involved in F1 and IndyCar, it was also active in the national DTM touring car series. While Europe and the rest of the world were becoming enamoured with the Class 2 Super Touring rules for saloon car racing, the German series was adopting Class 1 Touring car regulations. The two-litre production-based Class 2 championships were producing close, door-banging racing across the world. Manufacturers were able to migrate from country to country with their product. This form of racing was also booming with the help of large TV figures. But a Mercedes it wasn't enough of a technical challenge. It was a sentiment shared by fellow German car producer Opel and something that also attracted the Italian Alfa Romeo brand. The open rules of Class 1 was based on production cars but it left a huge amount of scope for manufacturers to produce bespoke racing cars. The engine rules simply allowed the competing companies to use any engine based on a mass-produced block but with a limit of 2.5 litres, 6 cylinders and 4 valves per cylinder. The engine didn't necessarily have to correspond with the car that was raced, and a whole host of parameters were open to development. While F1 was busy banning driver raids, the DTM thrived on them. The three manufacturers implemented all-wheel drive, traction control, electronic differentials, aerodynamic packages below the centre wheel line, bespoke racing suspension and anti-lock brakes. The engines and transmission were dry-mounted, meaning that all connections, electric and mechanical, were connected by a series of clips and plugs. This development allowed a team to remove the front or rear bodywork, unplug, remove and replace an engine in under five minutes. Opel even went so far as mounting their engine longitudinal, whereas the production car had the engine mounted in a transverse position. It was a free rein. The cars were also expensive, but they were fast and supremely spectacular to watch. They were also incredibly successful and drawn huge crowds to classic tracks across Germany. In 93 and 94, the championship experimented with races in Italy, Britain and Belgium. They were so popular that the DTM decided to run a parallel international championship in 1995. 
DTM and International Touring Car Championship of 1995 featured 14 rounds in Germany and 10 rounds in Europe. It was universally well received. The teams and organisers felt the scope was there to grow the championship further. With notable XF1 drivers, stars of the future, powerful engines now revving up to 15,000 RPM and the most technologically advanced racing cars in the world, the megabook spending of the manufacturers needed megabooks exposure. An expansion into new territory was needed to justify the outlay. The DMSB, German Motorsports Governing Body, handed control over to the FIA for the series to become an officially sanctioned and run international championship. This move ultimately became politically and financially contentious and fatal to the championship. Once again, like Group C, the evil puppet master who engineered the collapse is billed as one Bernard Charles Ecclestone. And on the surface of some tongues, that appears to be true. But look deep and you'll find that Bernie did try to make the championship work. As for Max Mosley and the FIA, some of the vitriol that came after the collapse didn't put them in a particularly good light. The 26th race series of the 96 ITC featured six rounds in Germany, five rounds in Europe and a double header flyway season ending in Brazil and Japan. It was what the teams wanted and they agreed with the FIA and Eccleston a stipulation of a three-year commitment with an $8 million penalty to be paid by a manufacturer who jumped ship early. International TV contracts were brokered. They were not of the quality demanded by Opel, Alfa and Mercedes, but to the rest of the world, this was year one after all. The plan to shore up finances included racing ticket prices. After all, this was now an FIA international series. In the German heartland of Class 1 touring cars, this didn't go down too well. Not only had Germany effectively lost its national series, but the loyal fans were now having to pay extra to attend. To add to the woes of fans in the series' motherland, the national TV coverage wasn't going to be on par with what they had previously viewed. It was satellite pay TV coverage only. The open paddock that the fans were used to was retained, and initially, fan reaction and attendance at the first two German rounds matched expectation. But that wasn't to last. While the on-track action was furiously bombastic, the lower-than-expected media coverage internationally was worried at Oakland Alpha. The crowds at some of the European circuits were lower than anticipated. On return to Germany for races at the Norris Ring Street Circuit and Dieppe's Airfield, fan antipathy towards the series was evident. With Michael Schumacher now a double world champion, and at Ferrari, the scarlet of Maranello was becoming prevalent in the dress of the average German attendee. The following races at Silverstone, Nürburgring and Magnico were well below expectations. Alpha, in particular, were unimpressed with the dealings of Eccleston and the FIA. The company stated that with the financial restructuring taking place in their competition department, the return on spend wasn't being justified. Alfa Romeo decided they were walking away at the end of the 1996 season. The next round at Mugello in Italy was where the death knell of the championship was served. Opel also announced their withdrawal. Both manufacturers cited the marketing problem of racing countries where their products were not available. Opel went further, criticised TV deals, media coverage and lack of promotion from the championship organisers as other determining factors. The responses to this included retorts towards the two constructors for forcing the rising cost of the cars upon themselves, alongside pushing for an international series. 
They were accused in some quarters of being over-ambitious and full of self-ill-advisement regarding what it would take over three years to achieve a stable championship. A war of words broke out between Opel and Eccleston. Both threatened to go public with private correspondence over their dealings. But the most pathetic, childish and downright spiteful threat came from FIA President Mosley himself. In a deplorable and piteous move he called for an outright two-year ban on General Motors, the parent group to Opel, from any FIA event around the world. International Class 1 had burnt out in two years as the cycle of unchecked spending, disagreements over promotion and manufacturer self-interests mirrored the end of Group C. While all this bit of mudslinging and slouching was being carried out, Mercedes continued on with their race programme, culminating in a double win at season's end in Suzuka. The company kept quiet as the FIA announced the cancellation of the ITC for 1997. The silver touring cars of the three-pointed star had nowhere left to race. With this spare capacity available at the EMG arm of Mercedes and a 1997 ITC budget as surplus, what were Mercedes-Benz to do? Inspiration came from a German rival, Porsche. All thanks to their politically charged invasion of the recovering endurance racing scene. Stepping back to the end of Group C, as mentioned earlier, Peugeot continued at Le Mans in 93 after the collapse of the World Sports Car Championship. They made an explosive jump into F1 for 1994. Explosive in the sense of erupting engines as opposed to hot on track performance. This left a barren hole in the top classes for Le Mans in 94. Numerically, the race that year was dominated by GT machinery. Porsche 911, Venturi 600 and other GT cars made up the numbers while a depleted prototype field fought for honours against two oddities, two well-turned-out GT1 cars. After a regulation change forced the Porsche 962 out of running at Le Mans, the company, along with fashion designer Joe Dower, circumnavigated the entry rules. By building a road-based GT1 car around the 962, Porsche were able to race as a GT entrant with a car that was still rooted in the 1982-956, it took the win. And after that, the loophole was promptly closed. What this didn't hide was the threadbare entry that Le Mans had received. The situation improved slightly in 1995. Among the 48 cars that raced, there were eight prototypes, but the bulk of the field was still made up of GT cars. The saving grace for that year was the quality of the GT cars, and where they were racing when not at Le Mans. Exotica in the form of the McLaren F1 GTR and Ferrari F40 boosted the GT1 ranks, bringing a certain romance back to the race. And through the rain-afflicted event, McLaren were able to take a victory and fall of the top five overall places by the time the flag fell. GT racing was making a comeback, and all thanks to three individuals, Jürgen Bart, Patrick Peter and Stefan Rattel, otherwise known as BPR. Motor Racing UK magazine, a magazine for national and club motorsport. Published and printed digital 10 times a year in a handy, toolbox friendly A5 format, MRUK is a features based mag that covers the broad spectrum of circuit based competition that emanates from all levels of racing in the United Kingdom. From club competition to British involvement in international motorsport, Motor Racing UK brings you interviews, overviews, opinion, and in depth long form articles from the rich race and culture offered from the British Isles. 
Find out more at motorracinguk.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. As organisers of the Porsche Cup, Bart, and the Venturi One Make series, Peter and Rattel, the three concocted the idea of merging their championships and running four-hour endurance races. It was an idea that gave the opportunity for owners of these cars to run in a better organised series with a much better return for their money over a year. It proved popular instantaneously. High-performance GT-based cars were invited to race, including the likes of Ferrari and Lotus. The popularity amongst competitors paved the way for gentlemen drivers to purchase machines such as the F1 GTR and F40 GTE to enter the foray. Races at traditional sports car racing venues such as Silverstone, Monza and the Nürburgring proved to be a mouth-watering enticement to the owners of these machines. The icing at the tip of this magnificent cake was the eligibility for the Le Mans 24 hours. Over the winter of 94-95, the BPR Global GT Series became the place for endurance races to be. The season was a huge success. For what was mooted as almost a gentleman's club for racing, had a fair amount of fans attending races and a decent amount of TV exposure. The following year, 1996, was a year where this new championship and its immediate accomplishments was recognised as a new beginning for endurance racing. Additions to the count included Bransach and the Daunton Spa. The series also raced in Japan, headlining the classic Suzuka 1000km. Again, the entries would make up the bulk of the Le Mans GT classes. A significant increase in numbers and quality of prototypes seemed to set the bench far too high for a GT1 car to repeat the glory from the previous year. The BPR challenges were largely discounted from being challenges for overall honours, but one GT1 car was booking the trend the all-new Porsche 911 GT1. It was, by far, the fastest and most advanced GT car at the event, if it was indeed a GT car. Shades of the Dower Porsche GT1 from 1994 were emerging. Was it really a sports car built for racing, or a race car homologated for the road? The problem that most found with the car was that Porsche were trying to pass it off as a bona fide road car on one hand, while failing to deny it was a race car on the other. One Porsche engineer did allude to it as being a quasi-911. The visuals of the front of the car was indeed shared with the front of the then-in-production 911 variant. The back, however, wasn't. The engineer joked that they cut 911 in half and turned the engine and gearbox around, turning the classic rear-engined machine into a mid-engined one. The engine, though, was definitely not a 911 engine. It was derived from the 3.2 litre unit used in the 956-962. A road car was around somewhere, and this was what worried teams in the BPR series. With that piece of hardware ready to be deposited if called upon, could they halt the inclusion of this car in 1997? The BPR Global GT series was for Grand Touring, two-door sports cars, adapted for the track for racing. The Ferrari F40, Lotus Esprit and Calabria Corvette were significantly rebuilt road cars. The McLaren was different. It had been designed as a race car for the road in the first place, so had an inbuilt advantage. Gordon Murray, the designer of the car, said that the 1995 McLaren competition machine was 30% race car, with the 96 iteration being 70% race car, and later the 97 long tail being 100% a race car. But they were all derivatives of a freely available 
at an admittedly hefty cost, car designed for road use. The Porsche 911 GT one was not. At this point in time, it was an irritating side story because the car was ineligible for the BPR series anyway. Those teams from the championship didn't expect a repeat of Le Mans 95. The 96 race was won by the Yerst Porsche WSC 95 prototype. The 911 GT one challenged for victory but could only manage second and third overall. While the best works cars finished a mere one lap down on the winner, which emanated from the same home, the best of the BPR teams, the David Price Race and McLaren, finished 16 laps behind in fourth place. After the French trip, the teams reconvened a fortnight later at the Nürburgring GP circuit, and the distraction of the Porsche invaded in the fold was gone. For now at least. By now, at the end of June 1996, BPR had managed to build a fair and balanced championship. The roster of drivers included a number who had reached as far as F1, and those who had the money to be there, but despite all this, the balance between pro and amateur drivers was being well maintained. At the top end of the championship it was a two-car battle between McLaren and Ferrari. The McLaren had the edge, partially due to its low fuel consumption. Other cars joining the GT1 class of points during the year included the Lotus Esprit GT1, the Listerstorm GTS, the Chrysler Viper and a host of one-off supercars. A strong GT2 class also made the depth of the field rise to a higher level. The point system on offer actually meant that GT2 cars were challenging for the overall title. Post Nürburgring, the teams headed to Suzuka via Anderstorp in Sweden. The return trip back to the UK, though, was fraught with disagreement, disenchantment and disarray. The first steps in the dismantling of the BPR had been taken. Porsche had been allowed an entry into the race at Brands Hatch. They weren't allowed to score points though, but their presence alone was enough to ruffle the feathers of most in attendance. The gentlemen drivers who had bankrolled the teams that were leading the title race were extremely displeased. The entry of a game-changing factory team didn't just move the goalposts, it moved the whole stadium. The performance of the Porsche 911 GT1 at Brands Hatch was impressive. Pole position by a clear second was coupled with an almost faultless performance to win by a clear lap. One small delay in restarting the engine in the pit lane was the only problem encountered in the Sunday drive, and it was a Sunday drive. According to the other drivers on track, the Porsche crew were not even trying. They were avoiding curbs, there was some slight hesitation in lap and back markers. Overall, it gave the signal that they were just testing the machine. Porsche maintained that they were racing for the benefit of the category. In reality though, half the paddock knew that it was a sales pitch. They knew that a slew of customer cars would have been made ready for 1997. They say if you can't beat them, join them. But this was more, if you can't beat them, buy one and race the other customers for third. Next time out at Spa, the car was back again to spoil the party. This time though, the solo entry stretched its legs, taking pole with a time in excess of three seconds. In the race itself, the gap was over a lap to the good of the lead McLaren. With a couple of rounds left in the 1996 season, the BPR Global GT Series was all but over. The final European race at Nagaro in France was the title decider, with Ray Balm and James Weaver taking the honours in the GT Series. They epitomised what the BPR Championship was all about. A skilful full-time professional driver, teamed with a proficient amateur. The politics of the Nagaro weekend continued apace. Disagreements over the Porsche issue were forced to the forefront. 
teams were angered at the inclusion of the car. The fact that no road car was available but we examined immediately. That caused genuine anger in the knowledge that Porsche were running a car constructed with exotic materials and enhanced technologies pointed to a hike in costs for those wanting to keep up with them. The general consensus was that it would cost an extra half a million pounds a season to match what the German mark was running. It was also obvious that Porsche had the money and know-how to develop the car even further should any of the BPR competitors come close. These issues were discussed in a number of quarters. Nobody was happy with the state of play. More disturbing to the teams was the fracturing opinion of BPR itself. Bart, Peters and Rattel seemed to be heading in different directions. Many viewed Jürgen as the enemy. His association with Porsche and his positivity at the arrival of the GT1 gave the impression of him being a bought man. He seemed to be wearing a Porsche company hat firmly upon his head. Patrick Pete was dead set against the developments. It was pretty obvious he was in the gentleman camp. It was also pretty obvious he was resigned to accepting the inevitable fate of the championship. Stefan Rattel looked in another direction. He appeared to be set on continuing with the championship regardless of its guise. His organisational genius would be an asset to whatever kind of championship was to be rebuilt out of this wreckage. The rumours were already abounding that Bernie and the FIA were looking over towards the series as a potential acquisition, especially with the demise of the ITC. They needed something to fill that touring car void. The popular thought was that most teams would decamp to a mooted German GT series run by the body behind the defunct DTM ITC, ironically similar to what we're seeing for the 2021 season in Germany. By now it seemed the split was inevitable. But which one of the BPR would succeed? Bart? Peter? Rattel? The final race of the season in China was once again dominated by Porsche. They took two cars this time. And that was almost the end. Only two races remained, both of them in Brazil. Once again, these were contentious affairs. Added during the season as extra races, the teams balked at the idea. BPR were forced to downgrade the races to two-hour non-championship affairs. And that was where this level of GT racing petered out. Three years after an astute move to bring together drivers and cars for the personal enjoyment and fiscal value of endurance racing it was over and done with. BPR had created the hottest series in motor racing and players from outside the championship were vying to create a reinterpretation that would meet their own motives. In the weeks following the BPR season finale, all kinds of rumours were abounding around the media. The FIA were taking over the show. But who was going to headline? It was plainly obvious Ferrari and its customers were not willing to continue with the Eugene F40. Would McLaren push the F1 further? Considering how far behind Porsche they were. As for the XITC lot, well, GT racing wasn't exactly a desired 40 for Alfa or Opel. What about Mercedes? In November it was, according to the German motor race and press, 100% certain that Mercedes were going to hit Super Touring. Behind the doors of power in Stuttgart, the sentiment was leaning towards toppling rivals Audi from their two-litre throne. And anyway, it appeared that a large amount of BPR teams were about to decamp to a new ADAC-run German GT series, along with ITC refugees Zach Speed and Team Roxburgh. GT racing appeared to be fracturing at every single joint. Nobody really knew what was to come. Quietly, McLaren and BMW were revitalising the F1 GTR. 
An aggressive programme led by Gordon Murray was already re-evaluating every component of the car. New aero was being tested, BMW were pushing further development with the engine and an entirely new gearbox was also being built. A long tail, road-going derivative was also spotted on the streets of southern England. An obvious move to copy the long tail of the Porsche 911 GT1. Porsche was sure that they were not going to be beaten and continued to develop the 1996 car. Where careful and considered approach was being taken. In truth, Porsche were counting beans and didn't realise they were to an extent resting on their laurels. 1997 was to be a huge shock to the racing arm of the company. The speed they had over their rivals through 1996 seemed to guarantee a large percentage of their advantage. Frankly, as it turned out, the winter programme was nowhere near what it should have been. Building a large amount of customer cars was paramount to the financial side of the programme. A slight technological advance in the Evo factory entry was intended to give themselves an edge over the other 911 GT1 entrants. Quite quickly the odd murmur of dissatisfaction surfaced from the direction of some of their customers. Were cars going to be delivered on time? Would there be enough spares? There was at this point no question about how competitive they'd be. It almost seemed as though factory and customers were, literally and figuratively, banking on a repeat of the 956962 Group C Monopoly. Competition was creeping upon them, however, and two upstarts were waiting in the wings, Pianos and Lotus. The small upstart Pianos company needed a cage for their creation. It was a monster in every way. 24 years on, and the Pianos is still the loudest car I've ever heard. Richter scale was the magnitude of volume that emanated from it. The Pianos Esperante GTR1 booked convention in all directions. Placing the engine in front of the driver was unique in endurance racing in the top class at that time. That was one oddity. Added to the fact that the engine itself wasn't what one would expected for distance racing. A 6-litre Ford V8 built by Roush Racing, a NASCAR competitor. What did a NASCAR team know about endurance racing? The overlooked fact was that they were building engines en masse. Engines that raced for four hours, flat out, each and every week. Roush knew their stuff and provided Pianos with an engine and engine note that would forcibly and violently turn heads. It would make an impact on all who experienced it, but would it make an impact on the timesheets? Lotus weren't well prepared. They were building a GT1 version of the Elise, a machine supposedly based around their forthcoming road car of the same name. In truth, it may have shared aesthetics with its brethren, but it was purely built for racing under the stewardship of George Howard Chabell and designed by Martin Ogilvy, The Elise only had one major visual difference to its street-based version. The rear was 20 centimetres longer to accommodate its larger engine. The five-month design process for both race and road was an unbelievably short turnaround from concept to track. The car looked like a contender when it was revealed to the press in late November. Bedecked with beautiful lines and a purposeful pose, Unveiled in its naked carbon fibre glory, this looked like it could redeem the name of the mark after their exit and fall from Formula One Grace in 1994. It was almost at this exact moment in time that behind closed doors in Germany, the final manufacturer to end the championship was given green light to a GT project too. It was an even shorter programme than that experienced by Lotus. In mid-November, rumours were flying around stating that Mercedes were to build a GT car based upon their SLK range. At that point, the Super Touring programme was about to get the green light. 
An about turn and attitude resulted in the company charging their race norm AMG with building a car based on the CLK model, not the SLK. It was to be raced in the FIA GT Championship. That was at the beginning of December. The only thing they did know was that the engine was to be based around the M120 design used in the S600 range of road cars. A huge 6 litre V12. From initial concept to final design it was a busy period. The race tuned version of the engine hit the dyno in the first week of January 1997 as the first carbon fibre chassis was being moulded. To understand a modern GT car, Mercedes had used some stealth. They were, after all, entering the GT arena as rivals to the BMW engine McLaren. The complication here was the fact that Mercedes were partners of the McLaren F1 team. They were supplying engines to the Woken constructor as they chased Formula 1 glory. There was a need to know exactly what was going on under the skin of the dominant F1 GTR. They couldn't exactly go to McLaren and ask to have a look, so Mercedes actually went off and purchased one second hand through a third party. And it wasn't just for looking at. While AMG were beavering away on the CLK project, many other manoeuvres were being made by players in the sport. With the announcement that the championship was to be run by the FIA, the TV rights went, by default, to International Sports World Communication, a Bernie Eccleston run company. ISC had exclusive rights to all FIA-sanctioned competitions. In the immediate aftermath of the TV packages failing the ITC in 1996, it was with a dismayed feeling that entrants would have to shut up and just get on with whatever was on offer. The move was to eventually be looked into by the European Commission, resulting in a breakup of the ISC TV rights monopoly. The 2007 publication, The Regulation of Sport in the European Union, stated... Having concluded the preliminary investigation, the Commission stated that it had found evidence which suggested that, in at least one case, the FIA abused its dominant power force to force a competent promoter, the GTR organisation, out of the market. The FIA then replaced the GTR series with a similar FIA championship, the FIA GT championship. The GTR promoted BPR series was no more, its dissolution was officially confirmed in April of 1997. The players for power and control for replacement were in motion already, and the dissatisfaction was bubbling under regarding the potential distribution of wealth. The R in BPR, Stefan Rattel, broke the news that entry fees were to be increased by around £15,000 per car for the series. Rattel informed them that the increase was caused by their demands to have more intricate scrutiny and and chidingly, he added that a high level of competition was bound to increase costs. Continuing disquiet through February 1997 included the as-yet-unannounced calendar. In a move akin to the Stonewall attack chess opening, teams were hit with a raft of deliberately provocative plans. The FIA lined up their defensive pawns while hitting with Knight and Queen. It left the teams running around without an alternative fallback. They'd already invested in the series. The FIA was also probing the teams and their commitment to Le Mans. Letting out the bag that they had planned races at Spa and the Nürburgring in the weekends before and after the Classic. Of course, sense would prevail in the periods before and after Le Mans would be left alone. But it did show that the FIA were quite happy to bait the ACO, the organisers of Le Mans, with the threat of forcing cars away from their race. 
Realistically, it was never going to happen. This was just another incident in a continuing campaign against the independence of Le Mans by the FIA. The governing body of World Motorsport were already using the GT series as ammunition against the organisation before wheels had even been turned in anger. At the end of February, both Porsche and McLaren had their 1997 cars homologated. Kramer received the first 911 GT1 customer car and the GTC Gulf McLaren squad appeared to be nearing a deal with Mercedes driver Bernd Schneider for Le Mans. The news had filtered through that the EMG squad wouldn't be bringing their Mercedes to the 24 hours. This led to some of the GT teams looking in that direction for the extra driver needed for the event. Schneider wouldn't be seen racing a McLaren in 1997. A few days later, Schneider was at the EMG facility having the first feet sitting for the new CLK GTR, but he was to test a McLaren though. The aforementioned McLaren F1 GTR test hack purchased by EMG was fitted with the development Mercedes engine and experimental bodywork that lengthened the nose and tail of the car. Eventually, EMG would restore its McLaren back to its original condition and would be sold into a private collection. A trip to Harama in Spain witnessed a behind-closed-doors test, also present at the test was ex-F1 racer Alessandro Nanini. After a competitive ITC season for Alfa in 1996, former Lancia Group C racer Nanini was left unemployed after the collapse of the championship. While Schneider was busy flinging the McMurk around, the Italian was wrestling a 96 Mercedes C-Class ITC machine. Mercedes was gathering useful data with experienced drivers. McLaren themselves, however, were not making much in the way of inroads. Drivers were complaining of a huge lack of grip during the testing of the new long-tail full-fat race-bred F1 GTR. It appeared that they had bridged the gap to the 96 Porsche, but the car did not instil any confidence during testing. Porsche sat back licking their lips while watching their prey from afar. They were confident enough in their car that they had budgeted to run one factory machine in the races before Le Mans and two Evo versions thereafter. An air of confidence emanated despite new turbo restrictor rules robbing them with 35 bhp. On Good Friday 1997 the beautiful CLK GTR hit the track for the first time. Once again the Mercedes squad decamped to Harama and ran a four-day test that was satisfactory enough for the board to sign off on an assault on the championship. By this point, it was 10 days until the opening round. On Monday, April the 8th, the CLK GTR was homologated despite not reaching the production rules for the road gun version. A number of opposition teams were rather upset by the FIA ignoring its own rules. It was seen as handing an advantage to EMG insofar as they could get the season well underway before concentrating on delivering a production run of road cars with the inspection of these machines happening after the end of the season. Some bit their tongues, while others were vocal in opposition. In all instances, there was a bad taste. To rub salt in the open wounds, and naturally looking to protect their own investment, Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Haug called for a last-minute change to the weekend format. He wanted the series to adopt a series of sprint races as opposed to the stipulated four-hour competitions. Were Mercedes already worried about their own reliability over a four-hour stint? As one would expect, the idea went down like a lead anvil with the other teams as the circus packed itself up for the trip to the opening round at Hockenheim. The championship had been cultivated in a contentious atmosphere, an atmosphere that would continue once wheels would finally turn in anger.